Hello fellow foodies! One of my favorite ways to start off a meal at any Asian restaurant is with a lovely bowl of steaming hot miso soup. But it wasn't until recently that I learned that miso is actually a fermented product made from beans, oftentimes from soy. I never thought about the possibility of attempting to make miso from scratch at home until I came across Kirsten Schoke's book on just that topic. So if you've ever been curious about the microbial transformation of beans into products like soy sauce, tamari sauce, natto, miso, or tempeh, then this is the episode for you. I speak with fermenting guru Kirsten Schoke, who has authored several books unveiling the mystery and beauty of fermented foods. Kirsten is the co-author of the best-selling book, Fermented Vegetables, published in 2014. She's also published Fiery Ferments in 2017, Miso, Tempeh, Natto, and Other Tasty Ferments in 2019, and she has a forthcoming book called The Big Book of Cider Making that should be out in the fall of 2020. These books came from her desire to both help people eat in new ways, both for the health of themselves and the planet, and to push these culinary arts to new flavors. She and Christopher Schoke got their start in fermenting foods over 20 years ago on a 40-acre hillside small holding, which grew into their organic food company. When Kirsten realized that their passion was for the process, they chose to focus on teaching fermentation arts to others instead. They travel worldwide, helping people to make, enjoy, and connect with their food. You can find stories of a life fueled by fermented foods on Instagram at Kirsten Schoke, spelled K-I-R-S-T-E-N-K-S-H-O-C-K-E-Y, or on the web at www.ferment.works. I had the pleasure of taking a workshop with Kirsten earlier this year where I got exposed to some of these fascinating fermentation tricks, and I'm so glad that you'll be able to learn from her as well. I hope that you enjoy our discussion. Hi, Kirsten. How are you doing? Hi, Cassie. I'm doing great today. It's a, it's, um, a beautiful spring day in southern Oregon, a little too beautiful actually for this time of year, but I'm, I'm enjoying it anyway. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I don't know about um, how things are in your kitchen right now, but I am eating a lot of beans and rice during the uh, quarantine and your book on, on bean ferments came to mind. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit um, about your work with, with these ferments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, think it's an exciting time for beans. <laughs> they're, they're usually maligned as, you know, you eat them in a burrito, you might buy them in a can if you're going camping, and otherwise, Americans don't eat a whole lot of beans, so I kind of think it's an exciting time. Um, and I think the, the first thing, just for anybody out there who is interested in beans, is that first soak that if you have dry beans and you soak them canned beans are not soaked um, pre being canned they're actually stuck in the can um, with water and dry beans and and cooked in the can but if you're cooking beans at home you get to soak them and that soaking is 
is actually a first step fermentation. It, um, you do it overnight. I like to do 18 to 24 hours and you'll see little bubbles forming on top of the water and that's actually lactic fermentation happening. Um, so the cool thing that's happening is, you know, a bean is a seed and it wants to grow and as it hydrates, it's not thinking you're going to eat me. It's actually thinking, oh goody, I'm going to get to grow and it starts <laughs> changing and one of the things that it dumps are the the anti-nutrients the phytates that that um, we generally think of as a bad thing in beans yeah so this is why and it's it's really a, important to uh to rinse them right after after you've soaked them i do um i rinse them to get you know any of that water out and sometimes if i think about it i mean i don't get crazy about it but i also like to change out that water partway through. And again, you're going to get rid of, you know, any, any things that those beans are dumping and then you'll get some fresh water in there. Um, and the lactobacillus will still happily do its thing, which is beginning to break down these foods to make them more digestible for you. Um, we like to tell the kids that uh, the lactobacillus farts so you don't have to. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and so what are some of the beans that you really um, enjoy working with and, and why? Um, so in our Western culture, we haven't um, used the soybean a whole lot. And in fact, if you start reading about soybeans online, you're going to get all kinds of stories and horror stories um, about how they're not good for you. Um, but if you look towards ancient practices in Asia, you'll see that these beans are an incredible source of protein when they've been fermented. And that's the, the key word there. So soy, soy is great when it's been fermented. And I went 20 years without eating soybeans. And now that I've learned to ferment it in natto and in tempeh, and in miso, I find that it's not only delicious, um, but a very healthy part of my diet. That said, I still love, you know, pinto beans and, and great northern beans and all the beans that I'm used to eating from um, the Americas. And so the process, I like to say the microbes are equal opportunity starch eaters, you know, because they don't care what kind of bean you give them. <laughs> They're going to do their job and you're going to get, you know, the different flavors these different beans have to offer. Let's, let's start with soy because I'll confess, until recently, I had no idea what actually went into making miso soup. I know I loved it, but I, I didn't know that it was um, actually a fermented bean product. So could you walk us through that process, like how miso is made? Absolutely. So there's fermented bean pastes throughout Asia, and miso is the tradition that comes from Japan and the one that we're most familiar with. And it's a neat process. So with, with grains and with beans, you have starches, right? You've got these larger molecules that are little microbes that ferment. And I think of the microbes that ferment as things like yeast and things like bacteria. And they can't break into those starches to get at um, 
the food to ferment them. So, for example, you can get something going with the, with that soak on those beans, that lacto-fermentation, getting it started. But if you wanted to just stick cooked beans in salt water and um, get a lacto-ferment, you may not get something very yummy. Um, mm. The bacteria will get in there, but not it won't be able to really break in there. Um, we see this in in Western culture with malting, right? They they malt grains to make beer by starting to sprout it. And what that does is it creates enzymes. And those enzymes will break those larger molecules, be it the starches or the fats or the proteins, into their smaller pieces. This is important two reasons. One is you get... Um, way more flavor. So let's say protein, it's going to become amino acids um, when it's broken down by the enzymes. Um, the sugar, or excuse me, the starches are going to become simple sugars. So you, you're not going to taste a whole lot. And then after it's broken down by the enzymes, you're going to taste those sweetness. All that to say, to get to a fermented bean paste, you need to get enzymes on board. And a long, long time ago in Asia, they figured out that Aspergillus um, arisei, it's, it's a mold. You call, we call it koji, which is the Japanese word for it. Um, that this, this friendly mold will get into the grains or the beans and will start laying down a set of enzymes in order to feed itself. And in doing so, it starts breaking them down into a way that, that we can then um, bring on the other microbes and they can ferment it. So all that to the lead up is for miso, you start with koji that's been fermented generally on rice or barley. And the, the fungus has been, the, the growth of the fungus has been stopped. But that rice is rich and sweet and full of enzymes, and you're going to add that to the cooked beans. Now, traditionally, mostly soybeans um, have been made into miso, but throughout the world, people are, are making miso from everything. I mean, you can take this koji and you can, you know, make a bean miso, you can make a pea miso, you can make a lentil miso. I've even found, or you can make nut misos, because those enzymes are going to get in there and break down whatever that other thing you're putting in is. Um, I've even been playing with, with sourdough miso. I will take um, koji, and I will grow it on old sourdough bread, or not old, but stale, and toast that up first, grow the koji on there, and then pack it with um, salt. So once you have your koji, once you have your bean, you pack it with salt, you get it to be in anaerobic condition, and then and then you you find your patience, you wait. <laughs> so this, there's actually a lot of steps to this then because we've got the fungus, the koji, this aspergillus fungus that's that's doing its job to release the sugars. And then you're going to a microbial or a bacterial ferment as, as a second step. How, how hard is it to start making up a koji? You mentioned you can start it on rice. Is this something that's naturally found in the environment like we have with wild yeast? Or is it something that you need to add as like a starter culture? So aspergillus is, is, is 
found all around us. Um, you know that bread mold that happens? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a wild aspergillus. Um, the thing with catching wild aspergillus, and, and well, let me back up a moment. So the, the um, Korean duenjang tradition, the traditional method, actually catches the wild aspergillus on these cooked soybean blocks where the aspergillus moves in the cracks of these blocks while they're, um, while they're drying outside. So there is a, there is a tradition that, that very much uses wild aspergillus. Um, but what we know now also is that um, Aspergillus arise is, I think, one genetic click away from Aspergillus flavus mm. that is, um, you know, has the aflatoxin in it. And so for safety's sake, it's just, it's wonderful to just buy Koji <laughs> spores. Yeah. Yeah. And and go with what is you know known and works. But yeah, aspergillus is everywhere, and definitely something that is found <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Well, I know during your workshop we um, had an opportunity to taste the koji that had been prepared, and um, it was intensely sweet, which really surprised me because it's if you can imagine having just a grain of rice, but then taking the koji, which looks like grains of rice because it's basically formed on them. I mean, that sweetness, the release of the, of the sugars was really, um, really notable. It's, it's mind blowing, isn't it? I mean, the first time I tasted it, I mean, there, there was, there's a, for those of you listening that have never smelled it or tasted, there's a wonderful kind of, to me, it's a mushroomy floral perfume that goes with it, but it's, it's, shocking how sweet sweet it is I am um, in my book I actually grow it on um, oats or I will use just purchased you can purchase rice already inoculated with koji which takes out a step for you so if you really want to make miso or you want to make amazake or you want to make any of these koji ferments um you can actually just purchase it and not ever grow it yourself. And I will, I will do that with oats. And if I soak my, my oats overnight with a little bit of koji, the next day um, you can eat it as oatmeal that tastes like, a, like an oatmeal cookie because oh. all those natural sugars are in there and they've been brought out. So we make granola and we make things with oats and never add sugar and yet they're sweeter than if we, you know, dumped a bunch of maple syrup on there. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I like the idea of, of having a kind of pre-made koji, especially for beginners. I think that's probably where I would start. So once you have your koji, and let's say that we select this, we select soybeans to make miso, how does, how does this next step work? Or do you blend them together? Are the soybeans fresh? Are they soaked are they like fresh like edamame or um, what's that next step yeah yeah so this is the fun part um and then let me let me just back up a minute um for those of those of you listening who are not super familiar with miso you know you know you get a miso soup when you go out to sushi or something but Mm -hmm. there are um, different types of miso like if you're standing there looking at the miso shelf in the grocery store you're going to see white miso 
you're going to see maybe a red miso, maybe a mellow miso that's um, could be chickpea or barley miso. You're going to see maybe a really dark aged miso. And the reason I want to explain that is when you're making a traditional miso, the different flavors you're going to get are really just a different combination of those four ingredients. And those four ingredients are the koji, um, usually on rice, um, soybeans that have been soaked and cooked till done, and salt and thyme. So those, those white misos, if you like a white miso, they aren't fermented very long. Maybe, you know, some of the real traditional ones that are really creamy and sweet have only been fermented maybe two weeks to a month um, versus, you know, a deep, dark, nine-year hacho-style miso. And so how those are made are those, those young white misos are more koji rice, right, less salt, less thyme, less protein, less beans. Hmm. The dark misos are sometimes the koji isn't even on the rice. It's grown directly on the beans, more salt and more thyme, and obviously less koji. And then you get these red misos, which, which might be somewhere in between, you know, maybe half beans, half koji, more salt, more thyme for that aging to really get in there. And so on those white misos, you're tasting that sweetness still. By the time you get to those darker, older misos, the lactobacillus has broken those sugars down into lactic acid. The yeast has gotten in there and worked it. And everybody's kind of changed it, and you're getting this, this deep, earthy, umami flavor. So if you're at home, that's your first your first step is, what am I looking for? Do I want something sweet and quick? Then you're going to make a light style miso, and that might be, um, you know, two-thirds koji to one-third bean with maybe, I'd say, a five-six percent salt ratio. Um, traditionally, these salts are a little bit higher than what that, you know, we're doing now in the U.S., but if you get much lower than five, even at five, you're going to start getting more sour flavors in your miso. And what that is, is that's the lactobacillus running away with it. So mm. this part of the salt is controlling that ferment and keeping all the different microbes sort of um, from, from taking over the party. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's just so fascinating. If you oh. want to dark miso, you're going to do just a little bit of, of um, koji, higher salt percentage, maybe 16% and a higher bean percentage. And then you you squash it, you know, either with your hands or with uh, a um, meat grinder or something. By the time you put it into a food processor, it's a little wetter than you want it to be. Um, you don't want You don't want your paste to be too wet. I, I like to do it sort of mashed potato-y uh -huh. <laughs> and consistency and you press that down you get all the air pockets out and um, you put a lot of weight on it kind of as much weight as product so let's say you decided to make two pounds of miso you want you know two pounds of marbles or box or 
you know, a bag filled with salt or whatever, whatever you find in your house <laughs> to weigh it down. And um, that's going to keep air pockets from forming and it's going to press out any extra moisture on top. And that moisture on top that comes up that oozes out is actually the original tamari sauce. So tamari sauce way back was a byproduct of the miso making process. It was that that golden amber liquid that that oozed out of <laughs> the bean paste. Yeah, and tamari is, I think, especially in recent years, it's become much more popular in cooking. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between tamari sauce versus soy sauce? Because I think they're often kind of interchanged in cooking. Right. Um, and I think in modern times, one of the big reasons you see so much more use of tamari is it's um, usually wheat-free. Mm -hmm. So soy sauce um, is made, at least Japanese soy sauce, again, different countries have a little bit of a different process, but is made by growing um, the koji fungus on cooked beans and um, cooked sort of steamed steamed beans with steamed um, wheat and so the meat or excuse me the fungus is grown on there and then that is dumped into a big vat with a salt brine and then it is stirred now and then and those that salty brine is is kind of picking up all the goodness from the beans and the and the grain and a traditional soy sauce which you can buy you can buy the ones that are fermented or are often you know at minimum fermented for like 18 months it's oh, a wow. long yeah. a long process many of the you know soy sauces that we would just grab off the shelf have you know either their fermentation's been quickened by heat or by different processes or you know they're just hydro hydrolyzing the protein and and going from there and they're not even a fermented product at all anymore oh that um, makes me sad <laughs> that's sad. right so you do want to look for that <laughs> don't buy cheap soy sauce yeah, yeah. um and then um uh, tamari sauce, or yeah, tamari sauce, like I said, is traditionally those oozings up from the miso making process. But as you can imagine, you don't get a whole lot, right, from each practice. So a long time ago, um, they figured out this product's pretty good. Um, we need more than just the byproduct because people want it. And it's now made as a uh, miso in that it's a it's a slurry it's a paste but much more watery than if you were actually just making a miso and they have these really interesting cups or these these systems that they put in these vats with wood and some holes drilled in them and it's hard to try to explain it over the phone but just know you've got this kind of ladder um, network of of these wood cups kind of in there and what happens is that again the pressure is going to ooze out that tamari sauce from the bean and rice based 
paste. And so that's, that's the big difference. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So again, soy sauce has wheat involved in its production, which makes it perhaps not a great choice for people with gluten intolerance and the um, tamari does not. Exactly. Yeah. And then of course, always just read labels because yeah, in the days of, of massive food production, uh, processing and manufacturing and <laughs> people cheat. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about some other bean products. One that I was fascinated with a little bit, a little bit grossed out to be honest was Nato. It's also called Snotto in slang. Right. So what is that exactly? And, and how is it made? Okay, yeah, so that's my favorite ferment at the moment. Um, <laughs> and uh, so what is natto? Natto is a soy ferment. It is a, natto itself is the Japanese version. So you've got um, ferments all over Asia that are using Bacillus subtilis as the microorganism that is going to transform this food. Now, I'll back up to the history um, mythology of where natto started. Um, there's there's two stories, but one is, um, you know, warring warring samurai has the beans, the cooked steamed soybeans they're about to eat. The attackers come, he wraps it all up in straw, throws it onto the horse, you know, day later, they're like, oh yeah, those beans, you know, let's eat them now. And they're, of course, slimy and they have this really ammonia, nutty smell and they say, okay, yeah, let's eat them. <laughs> and they discover they're delicious. Um, who knows? But basically what happens is, Bacillus subtilis is, is again everywhere. It's one of the, um, what some people call the soil bacteria, but it's very um, common on grass. It's um, an important microbe for our, um, our guts. And that's what ferments natto. And Bacillus subtilis works much differently. So instead of acidifying like our vegetable ferments, lactobacillus or, or any of those souring ferments, it goes the other way. It heads, it heads up the um, pH scale towards alkalinity hmm. um, to try to, and, and makes that slime. And, and I think both of those things are, again, you know, the microbes want to control whatever their food source is for their own kind, right? So they're, they're competitive. They're trying to keep everybody away. And Bacillus subtilis does that with, with going up the alkaline scale. And so what you're going to get is you're going to, the longer it goes, you're going to get ammonia smells. Um, and for some people that is a little more, a little off-putting. Um, but earlier in the ferment, when it's younger, you're going to get little coffee notes and nutty notes. Um, some people feel like it's the closest you're going to get to maybe a, um, uh, um, a cheese that's been aged, like a common bear or something with a rind, you know, that, that's mm. been aged. Um, so if you start, you, you start thinking about it in other ways, especially cheese, right? And then you start being 
Okay, well, we really like picking up a piece of pizza that is really melty and the, the mozzarella is stringing off of it. And if you, you can kind of change your thinking, then yeah. picking up those beans that are, you know, have got these um, threads suspended from them <laughs> doesn't feel as off-putting, right? So just, um, but then the other thing you've got as far as just liking it is our cravings come from our guts. And so if you can sneak it into your world, um, it's, it's amazing how you will suddenly start craving it. That happened to my husband. I had a, I have a friend of mine that called me the other day and she said, Oh my God, my husband who's known sweet tooth loves nacho and it's because as his gut's changing his cravings are changing yeah um yeah. and so the, the the reason i build it up with you know you, you should like nacho and you want to crave nacho is i'm sure you're thinking well why would i want to crave a sticky slimy <laughs> um so why would you want to eat nacho <laughs> The health benefits are out of this world. I, I feel like they're um, the superest of superfoods. Um, it's the highest in vitamin K2, and it has something called natokinase, which is an enzyme that, as it sounds, is from natto. Um, that, that's in the slimy stuff. And the combination of these two ingredients plus the fermentation of the soy, which we also know has a bunch of, um, you know, good things. But it's the combination of those other two ingredients that, that make the magic. Um, you're getting um, the natto kinase, that enzyme, almost acts like, like little blood cleaners, right? It, it gets in there and it goes through your circulatory system and sort of scrubs it out. Um, so it's amazing for cardio health, for high blood pressure, for varicose veins, for all the things that kind of make your blood um, sluggish in your veins, um, if you will. And at the same time, that, that K2 helps you keep the calcium in your bones. So it will, a regular consumption of natto will stop osteoporosis in its tracks. Um, we had a, a surgeon come to one of our classes this past summer, and he was so excited about Nato because he does heart surgery. And he said when he, when he goes to open somebody's sternum, he knows right away what condition their cardiovascular system is going to be in because if it's um, not hard but, you know, sort of brittle, then he knows that when he touches their veins, it's going to feel like there's eggshells in there. Mm. And so he wants everybody to eat natto because what it does is it keeps that calcium in your bones and out of your blood. <laughs> so that to me seems like a really good reason to eat natto. <laughs> yeah, definitely one to try for sure. And we had a we had a an episode on the show recently with Dr. Omer Kukchuk, who's a cancer doctor here at Emory and he spoke a lot about the the kind of chemo preventive applications of soy and soybean products and again like you're saying this fermentation um, of the of the product can can further 
release some of those really healthy compounds. And I think that's really, that's really fascinating. Now, what other it kind is, of, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What other kind of cool, cool uh, soy products can you share with us or other bean products? I knew earlier you mentioned tempeh. Is, is that also made with soy? Yeah. Tempeh is wonderful. Um, just back to cancer real quick. Miso, yeah. we didn't talk about health benefits, but they've done research in Chernobyl and then way back in Hiroshima and the regular consumption of miso also seems to help with um, combating radiation. So that's, that's cool. Oxidative stress. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So tempeh is wonderful. Tempeh is a um, another fungus, fungal ferment um, like like koji, you are inviting a fungus to to knit, knit your, in this case, beans or, or other grains or whatever, your substrate together um, into these cakes. It's traditionally from Indonesia. And the fungus we're talking about here is uh, Rhizopus, um, Rhizopus oligosporus or Rhizopus oryzae is what you'll see. And tempeh, tempeh, digs into those beans in order to feed itself. Again, laying down enzymes, fermenting it, changing, transforming these beans. It's also alkaline in that it doesn't create acid. And it gives you this, this wonderful cake that has a great, you know, for lack of a better word, a meaty mouthfeel. Um, and so, especially as we're looking at trying to change some of our eating habits and food systems, you know, it, it, to help with global warming and whatnot, beans are such a great food. And, and tempeh, while originally it's a soy product, can be made on any bean. And you can make these beautiful bean cakes that are delicious um, and have fermented in a way that, that again, takes out some of the things that we, you know, might not like about the beans. Um, tempeh has its interesting sort of health benefit. It hasn't been studied as, as much as, as some of these other soy ferments, but its interesting health benefit has to do with it's, it's not eaten raw and it's not a ferment that has live, you know, bacteria and it's, it's not probiotic yet it has gut health components. Uh, they found in, in areas where traditionally a lot of tempeh is eaten, um, these communities don't suffer from dysentery-related issues that other you know, neighboring communities that don't eat as much tempeh do. And so that's just one example, but there are you know, a lot of these gut gut components associated with it, but they don't, they're not really clear on what they are yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you have probiotics and we have, you know, nutrients that can serve as prebiotics or food, not just for your body, but also for that gut microbiome. And it's such a fascinating area of science that's emerging around gut health and the microbes that um, pre-digest our food and, and, and provide all these different, um, uh, micronutrients to our bodies. And I just, I think I'm, I'm becoming such a fermentation junkie. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm so, I, I love to see how 
it can be used, how we can use beneficial microbes from the environment to transform one ingredient into many, many different products. I mean, that's just amazing to me. I mean, even something as simple as milk, you know, making, as you mentioned, some different cheeses earlier, um, the fact that we can have products like yogurts and cheese and costs and all these different um, products coming from one ingredient from, a, from dairy, but then we also see it in plants, like you mentioned, with soy or other beans being transformed in this whole plethora of different flavors and um, consistencies, textures. I mean, it's, it's a great way to increase diversity on your plate. For sure. And, and I mean, preservation. That's why we as humans discovered these things, right? Because everything is seasonal and we had to, <laughs> we had to make it last longer. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, you know, something we don't think of as much because we have refrigerators. Um, but that was, and grocery stores. But right now, with everybody at home <laughs> and not able to go to the grocery store, you know, it's a nice time to discover also that you can take something, you know, whether it's you bought, bought way more greens than you needed and you're making ferments so that you can keep eating fresh, fresh vegetables, you know, while you can't go out or, or whatever. So you're kind of getting to see that part. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing that I certainly have in my pantry, it's lots of dried beans. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a great time to experiment with some of these. Oh, for sure. Well, if you, if you want to make tempeh or miso, um, I've, I've been able to order the spores that that's kind of the difference between those bean ferments really. And, and lactobacillus or sourdough or, or any of these wild ferments is that yes, the spores, well, I don't know about tempeh spores, but yes, there's wild versions out there, but really to get a good product, you do have to, you know, order spores that have been made in the lab and, yeah, and, and I've yeah. been ordering them while we've been um, at home now for over a month, and um, you can get them, and and a little bit goes a long way. So if you want to use your dry beans and make some miso, go to South River Miso or 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 just anywhere online and just get yourself some pre-made koji rice. <laughs> That's great. And also, as you mentioned, for safety, because there can be other kinds of um, aspergillus that we don't want to consume because of the production of certain toxins by some species. But this, this is a safe sure. species to use for transformation. Well, speaking about wild ferments, I wanted to just, before we wrap up on the episode, is is ask you a bit about some of your new projects. So for the listeners out there, Kirsten has written with her husband, these amazing, colorful, photographic books with amazingly detailed um, instructions on how to make all the products that we discussed today. That can be found in her book, um, uh, Miso, Tempeh, Natto, and Other Tasty Ferments. But then you also have a fantastic book on fiery ferments for anyone that loves hot sauce and all those kind of hot ferments and then also fermented vegetables. But I've heard that you've got another book coming out soon with wild yeast. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah. Um, cider making. I feel like it's going to be a much easier lift for many 
many people then saying, hey, eat these rotten, seemingly (laughs) rotten soybeans, right? (laughs) Here, have a beautiful glass of hard cider. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... So my husband and I have lived out in the in the mountains of southern Oregon for almost 22 years now, and we were blessed to to get these beautiful old um, hundred year old pioneer planted apple trees with the property. So one of the first ferments we started making way back was um, cider, and my husband actually trained as a cider maker. We thought for a while we were going to be commercial cider makers and. For a lot of reasons, we decided not to, but we still make hundreds of gallons of cider every year for friends and family. And and uh, so I don't know why that wasn't the first book, but it's it's the book now. So, <laughs> so we um, make wild wild fermented cider, but we also teach people how to make cider out of pitched yeasts. And really, we tried to do what we've done with the other books, which is choose your own adventure. Um, mm. But what I'm, I got most excited about and most um, interested in is, is capturing wild yeasts. And, um, you know, the more I read about where, where yeasts live, the more interesting it became. And so I spent um, a few years sort of seasonally capturing wild yeasts from plum blossoms and from cherry blossoms and from um, we have something called manzanita growing here in in our woods and I found that like the manzanita made this wonderful spicy honey flavored cider out of believe it or not store-bought apple juice Um, so part of the idea was not everybody has these organically grown apples that they can press and make their cider with you know a lot of people live in in cities, but you know maybe you know they in their neighborhood there's there's a fruit tree or um, you know even sunflower. I've made really good cider with sunflower petals, so you can you can capture these wild yeasts pretty simply and use them to inoculate literally any grocery store apple juice that doesn't have preservatives in it and and have a wild fermented hard cider with really unique flavors from your neighborhood. So wow. that's what wow. we've been doing. <laughs> that's amazing. That sounds, and that just sounds like a really fun um, microbiology experiment and fun home project to try out. And I like that you made it accessible to more people by, you know, including recipes for um, store-bought apple juice, because like you said, like we don't all have, um, access to a beautiful orchard. That's fantastic. Well, before before we go off, I guess my last question is over these years of fermenting, kind of what's been your biggest aha moment or um, the biggest takeaways that you've gained over all these years of practice and experimentation and sharing your knowledge? Hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that for me, the the biggest thing is sort of understanding which microbe you're working with. Um, you know, when you first get into fermentation, it just feels like such a mystery, you know, and, and people are so nervous about it because we've grown up um, not fermenting things anymore. We don't have 
those grandparents still doing that, right? Um, so it feels kind of overwhelming to folks, but I think the more I've done it, the more I've realized is just understand who you're working with. If you're working with yeast or you're working with lactobacillus, and then all you're doing is setting up the right environment, which, you know, a quick look at some books or Google search or whatever, you can usually find that out. Um, you know, and that means do they need oxygen or not? Like tempeh needs oxygen, right? Um, what are the temperature parameters? Um, whatever. And usually it's very simple. Remember, people have been fermenting for <laughs> thousands of years with none of what we have available to us. So it's very simple. And I think the takeaway for me is just set it up and kind of get out of the way. Like you don't need to worry about it and fuss over it. <laughs> and that's, that's when I started, I think, having the most fun, like, like cider making we just talked about. I wasn't interested in all the rules around it and pitching it with certain yeasts and doing all these things. But then once I figured out I could go outside and say, huh, I wonder what a baby pine cone cider would do. I wonder if there's yeast on that. And I started playing and just getting out of the way. That's when it became fun in a, <laughs> like in a new way. <laughs> so your advice is definitely play with your food. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> For sure. And, and don't be afraid of it. And, and yeah, because if it goes wrong, the beautiful thing about fermentation is it really is gross. It lets you know. <laughs> it's not like botulism where it's hidden, hidden, tasteless and odorless, you know, if yeah. things are wrong. It's more than just funky or, you know, a few slimy beans. It's, it's wrong, wrong. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for coming on the show and for sharing uh, this really fascinating information around fermenting beans and uh, looking into wild, wild yeast. If you'd like to learn more about how to start fermenting beans at home, definitely check out Kirsten's book, Miso, Tempeh, Natto, and Other Tasty Ferments, published in 2019 and available with all major booksellers. You can find more links to her workshops, books, and other learning materials on her website at ferment.works. And you can follow her on Instagram at Kirsten K. Shoki. Also, keep an eye out for the release of her latest book on using wild yeast to make apple cider. It should reach bookshelves early this fall. Kirsten and her husband, Chris, are also in the midst of developing an exciting new online course on ferments, and more information will be posted on their website when it launches. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. We've got a fabulous lineup of topics and shows for you this season, so be sure to mark your calendars because new episodes will release each Monday. And I also encourage you to check out some of our older episodes. You can find all of these for free to listen at our website at www.foodiepharmacology.com. Do me a big favor and also share those links of your favorite episodes with your friends. We're looking to reach a broader audience. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>